0: every monday to friday this is peter lewis's money talk
1: money talk
0: good morning this is peter lewis welcoming you to money talk for tuesday april the 18th this podcast is sponsored by surfing group which is headquartered in singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries in today's business and finance headlines, China's central bank left its one-year medium-term lending facility operation unchanged at three4 percent the eighth month in a row for it to stand pat. It made a liquidity injection for the fifth month in a row. PBOC made a fund injection of about $20 billion in April, the smallest since November. Three big US financial groups Charles Schwab State Street and MT suffered almost sixty billion US dollars in combined bank deposit outflows in the first quarter as customers continued to move their money in search of higher returns adding to the pressure on mid-sized lenders Apple and Goldman Sachs on Monday announced the launch of a new savings account in the US that will pay a market leading four point one five per cent a year that's more than ten times the national average rate Companies have committed more than 200 billion US dollars to US manufacturing projects since Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act last year. These laws provide sweeping subsidies to companies as the Biden administration seeks to break US dependence on Chinese supply chains. And Singapore's non-oil domestic exports shrank 8.3% in March year on year, though the drop was smaller than the previous month and was less than forecast. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Sam Faveur, CEO at Mandarin Capital, and our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood.
2: <laughs> is money talk.
0: On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rose Monday following a mixed bag of earnings as the first quarter reporting season gathers pace – Bank shares led the advance, while a slide in Google kept the Nasdaq in check. The S&P 500 rose 0.3% to finish at 4,151. The Dow gained 101 points, or a third of a percent, to end at 33,987. The Nasdaq also added a third of a percent to settle at 12,158. Shares of Google parent Alphabet fell 2.8% after the New York Times reported that Samsung is mulling ditching Google's search for Microsoft's Bing as the default search engine on its devices, threatening about $3 billion in annual revenue. And three big U.S. financial groups, Charles Schwab, State Street and MAT, suffered almost $60 billion in combined bank deposit outflows in the first three months of the year. Shares of State Street fell 11% after it reported deposits fell 5% in the first three months of the year that helped drag the KBW regional bank index down half a percent. Chinese markets advanced with the Hang Seng, adding 344 points, or 1.7%, to an eight-week high of 20,782. And this morning, the Hang Seng Index is projected to open 154 points lower, that's about 0.7%, at 20,630. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 1.4% to 3,386. That's a new eight-month high. Elsewhere in the markets, U.S. Treasury yields and the U.S. dollar rose, while oil prices saw the sharpest fall in a month. And you can get all the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you can find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter
1: Lewis's Money Talk.
0: It's time to welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michaelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Sam Favereau, who is Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Nice to see you again, Sam. And also with us in Washington, D.C., our regular Tuesday correspondent, our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry.
1: Good
0: morning, Peter. Let's start uh, with China. It's going to be an important day for economic data today. We've got first quarter GDP coming, industrial production, retail sales, fixed asset investments, all being released later this morning. China's central bank left its one year medium term lending facility operation unchanged at two and three quarter percent uh, yesterday. Um, they made a net liquidity injection of about $20 billion in April. That's the smallest since November. And it marks the fifth month in a row for the central bank to take such action. And Mark, perhaps you want to kick off. As mentioned, it is going to be a big day for Chinese economic data. But looking at what they did yesterday suggests that um, Beijing's not particularly worried about the recovery of the Chinese economy.
3: No, no and that's the message that they're, they're sending. Uh, Barry was on RTHK yesterday talking about Yigang, central bank governors, uh, various speeches in Washington, including to the... Uh, the IMF and World Bank meeting and to the uh to the Peterson Institute and so on and he 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 seems to be pretty confident that there are worries and of course laid out all those worries but things seem to be ha- in hand and he said they're going to they have the twin pillars of pursuing price and financial stability and he aims for a uh, inflation adjusted interest rate to average slightly below real economic growth over the next few years now if he can achieve that that would be that'd be quite an achievement but there is quiet confidence in china's economy this year maybe displaced to some degree including among many of our members of of our forum group.
0: Barry what did you make then, of of Yi Gang's speech he was he was pretty upbeat wasn't he about uh, the prospects for china he thought uh, the woes of the property sector were under control the financial sector was under control but, you know all the major drivers he he seemed pretty positive about
1: Yes, I think that's true. And, you know, I don't want to be an apologist for the central bank chief, but uh, this is a very erudite, smooth operating person who seems terribly candid. And, uh, you know, I think that the property problem that was so much in the news over the last 12 months, uh, he expresses no outward worry about that. He didn't suggest it was resolved. But it's certainly something that uh, he regards as under control. In terms of the internationalization of the RMB, uh, he's relaxed about that. He said uh, people and government should be able to trade in whatever currency they wish. Uh, you know, he said some things that probably were eyebrow raisers, saying that uh, you know China doesn't uh, intervene in the markets uh, to protect the. Uh, the renminbi, but of course it does from time to time, but less so than it used to. But anyway, that was very impressive, and I think that uh, he sees China at five percent uh, economic growth or more.
0: Sam,
3: you, you just you, can I just make one comment? It's the same thing. I went went on American Chamber delegation to China, I don't know, fifteen years ago or so, and and Yigong was was one of the deputies. He said exactly the same thing about the uh, about the freely. The, the free convertibility of the uh, of the renminbi he said i don't have a date and he said it again this time he said <laughs> yes, it's, he did. it's not, mm. not going to be tomorrow and that's a, a time when people were saying it's it's five years away or something like that but
0: if, if they were to do that if, if they were to allow the convertibility of the renminbi which is an absolutely essential precondition isn't it if it's yeah. going to be used more in trade and international finance um so. the, the government's going to have to give up control of the economy at the same time
3: yeah, it's a big, big deal, and they and they feel, and I, you know, Sam might have different views on this. I think they feel that that's been reasonably successful over the past few years, including during the financial crisis. Well,
2: I, I think for the central banks, there's two, uh, two different aspects. I mean, in terms of forecasting crises, the track record of uh, central bankers has been pretty, pretty poor. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, saying that, for the central bank in China, I think they have a decent environment, they also have a very narrow path because they still have, you know, inflation, which is creeping up. They still have those uh, credit issues going there. So they can't really go one way, one the way or the other. Uh, but they are lucky at this stage to have the recovery. And, you know, they have uh, the time to wait and see. So that's the positive side of it. Now, looking forward... um I think they're projecting a level of confidence because they obviously want to internationalize, but they still have a lot of domestic issues to solve, especially maybe not the real estate crisis, which seems to have baited a bit, but they have a lot of uh, local um, SOEs and local governments to deal with, especially after the, um, you know, the COVID crisis. So at some point that will have to be dealt with uh, and how they will deal with that will also have a huge impact on the credibility of, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, monetary policy and the uh, UN internationalization.
0: We had some pretty uh, mixed data, though, didn't we last week? The probably the most surprising one was the that trade data, the export data, which really surged. What was it about fifteen percent um, last month? And then when you compare that, when we've had trade data uh, for the same month from South Korea and Taiwan, their exports have plunged. So it's even more surprising, isn't it, that uh, that China seems to be doing so well when everything we hear is about the global economy slowing down? Sam.
2: Well, there's been some reallocation of trades. I mean, there's been some compensation with other regions. I mean, obviously, the, uh, China has been trying to rebalance its trade, not only with the, the, the classic uh, partners, but also, you know, with the likes of Russia and uh, the Middle East. So we're st- I think we're starting to see some of these effects. So there's cyclicality. So let's see how things go up. But it has been uh, fairly resilient, to be fair.
0: Mm. Barry, I wonder, though, how much of these exports that, um, that, that China is doing, which seems to be going mainly to Asian countries, places like Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, how much of that, though, is ultimately being re-exported uh, to the U.S.? So it's really um, U.S. exports, although they're being disguised a little bit through other countries.
1: Well, that may be true. Look, I, um, I think we've got a port problem in the West Coast. And uh, I don't think that there's anything that would suggest that um, there's a lessening of the United States' dependence on Chinese goods. So if they're coming in from third countries, so be it. The reality is that um, uh, the administration here and business, to a lesser extent, can look for lessening the dependence on China, but I don't see it really happening quickly and I don't really see it happening even slowly.
0: And uh, that's interesting, because we're hearing a lot. We heard it at the G7 foreign ministers meeting in Japan over the weekend. The main priority for the US and for the Biden administration seems to be to reduce um, its economic dependence on on China. But then when you look at the trade data uh, between US and China, it's at a record high. So it doesn't seem to be working, does it?
1: Yes, you're exactly right, Peter. Look, This business about Apple and India is interesting. But when you look not very far down in any paragraph written about this, uh, the initial moves by Apple in India is to open stores. Mm. That's very different from an assembly plant. Now, I know they would like and plan to do assembly
3: plants, but that takes longer.
0: Mm. Mark, what what do you make of this this effort by the U.S. to try and reduce dependency on China?
3: Well, it's interesting. It was in, they were in Karuizawa, which is one of my favorite places in the world. A lovely, lovely resort uh, town in, in, in Japan. But, you know, it's interesting that, that Secretary Blinken was with, the, uh, was with the French foreign minister and with the German foreign minister, mm. as you say, trying to make this point, which is a little bit in contrast to Macron's visit <laughs> to China and what he came back saying. And the Germans, not so much what they said, but what they're actually doing in terms of of the relationship with China. As Barry said, the relationships are too close and they're too intertwined. There are ways of of, of lessening them to some extent and, and many companies are trying to diversify to a degree. But at the same time there many of most of them are remaining in China and some are actually increasing investment. That could change if the geopolitics and other issues get more in the way than they are already. But at the moment that's what it is and the the issue is they can't raise that publicly, because then you get in a lot of trouble, especially in the United States.
0: Well, let me quote what German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock um, said yesterday at the conclusion of the G7 meeting. She said Germany wouldn't compromise on its values when it comes to engaging with China. In response to a question on Taiwan, she said that Europe won't look away if international law is violated. She said, I made it clear in China, we want to cooperate, we want to be partners, but we're not naïve. Um, so, Sam, this is different message, isn't it, from what Emmanuel Macron was delivering when he was in uh, Beijing, what was it, a week or so ago? What, what is the European position?
2: I, I don't think there is a European position, so that's the problem. So there are multiple positions. Uh, Macron obviously has his domestic problems, so he's trying to build an image of himself being a leader and trying to, uh, you yeah. know, to diversify away from the uh, general view so I think that's more a domestic issue but th- the fact is there is no uh, no European view and uh, the reality about you know the supply chain it's something which started 25 years ago it's a very very long-term thing mm-hmm. so even if we see decoupling we're going to see that over 25 years and you're you know if you're a CEO of a multinational really it doesn't matter what the G7 is going to do is going to say it's what the shareholders are looking at and at the end of the day it's money versus risk and at this at this moment if uh, China makes uh, the message and people feel confident to stay in china they will stay in china whatever the G7 or the US are going to say
3: one of the I was just at a China strategy meeting in shanghai which I think I mentioned last week of of, of our members about 100, 100 companies were there and uh and, you know, the message was on supply chains is that it's generally eased, not for everyone, but at the same time much happier than they were a few months ago in terms of their ability to get products and and semiconductors and so on. That may change, and of course it could change very quickly, but at the same time, you know, it, again, the cautious optimism was there, but also looking around the corner and not so sure what's going to happen and and the various other that we've been talking about, that Sam's raised and Barry's raised, or were at top of mind as well. Let me
1: just add the the, the trivial element of uh, Mr. Macron's visit. I was delighted to come across this video of how he was cheered on the streets of Guangzhou. I mean, people wanting to touch the French president. My goodness here you are in the greater Bay Area. I wouldn't have thought this would happen. But then he gets back to France and they're still in the streets. What a
0: contrast. But but they were rather carefully selected participants, weren't they? They weren't just people who happened to have turned up off the streets. I see. <laughs> let, let me ask you, Barry, about what the IMF warned um, last week. They, they warned about Carving the global economy up into these competing uh, geopolitical blocks led by the US and then another block led by China and its friends. What what do you think is the risk of that happening?
1: Well, I think it's a significant risk. Uh, The problem is for the fund that uh, China is a rising power in terms of the voting shares. Now, The United States and Europe dominate the fund, and and they will for some time. But any out forecast or any analysis takes into account that China needs to approve that. It's not Mm -hmm. as bad as, say, the OECD, where countries actually have a veto on what the organization can say about that country. But I think the fund is very careful. As to the reality of the world dividing in two blocks. I don't think so. I think the Asian countries, and of course you gentlemen are much closer than I, uh, I think that uh, they want to do business with both sides. Mm. Certainly the Japanese uh, feel very strongly that uh, you don't want to risk the relationship with their number one cha- trading partner, China. And that certainly is, is, is replicated right down all the way to Singapore and beyond. So in the United States as well, there's a lot of political rhetoric against China, but the business Relations remain very strong. I think uh, the fund had to say that and had to point out the danger of it, but I don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the world will uh, find a way.
3: I, I was at the IMF meeting in Hong Kong yesterday talking about that report, and clearly one of their concerns they didn't they didn't necessarily say it, but the implications were there is, of course, for the role of the IMF itself in such a world, and I think they're having problems as everyone else is, is managing the COVID COVID world and what that means for their authority and and how they can balance the various interests, whether it fragments completely or semi fragments, at least there there are rivalries. So I think that's one of the major issues as well.
0: Sam, if a split were to happen, maybe it's not likely, but let's suppose it did. It's pretty disastrous, isn't it, for, for the global economy? It, wouldn't it lower global trade and, and growth overall if that were to happen?
2: That would. Uh, we've seen that historically. Now, uh, I don't think it's likely to happen. I mean, as uh, Barry and, uh, and Mark mentioned, we're too intertwined at the moment. It's just too much to lose. But at the same time, we have those growing economies in Asia, uh, now going to be kind of the, you know, number one global economic force in the world. So I think it does make sense that they are advocating for higher power and a higher saying in those uh, international institutions. So, if you look at the dollar and you look at all these institutions which takes back to Bretton Woods, uh, there needs to be some evolution. So people, I mean, it's the politics at some point, they need to be smart enough and sit down and make it evolve. Otherwise, there will eventually be a split, because... You know, it's to be fair on their side. It's fair to us. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, companies. Of course, I teach. Sorry, Mark. it's a course, I teach. it's of course,
3: I teach at Chinese university exactly on that issue, and, and I couldn't agree with Sam more. It's just a question of how they're going to do it because they keep talk- talking about it, but as far as specifics, we haven't really seen much yet. Or at mm-hmm. least that's agreed on by a lot of people.
0: Now, companies have committed more than 200 billion U.S. dollars to U.S. manufacturing projects since Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act last year. These laws provide sweeping subsidies to companies as the Biden administration seeks to break U.S. dependence on Chinese supply chains and spark a new industrial revolution in the U.S. Barry, perhaps not all of our listeners are familiar with with the Inflation Reduction Act, which, if I'm correct, has nothing to do with reducing inflation and the Chips and Science Act. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about what these two acts are and what they're trying to do.
1: Well, I would put it. uh, You're absolutely right about the the name of that. It's the most atrocious name possible. And, uh, you know, it is it is probably going to boost inflation, not reduce it. But it's industrial policy. That's what we're really talking about. We're talking about the United States uh, reverting to a kind of policy that wasn't completely discredited uh, 20, 30 years ago, but it was rejected by administrations, mostly Republicans in this country, uh, that uh, used government uh, priming of a pump to uh, get the private sector involved. Mm -hmm. I think you could make the case that in high tech, this is a very useful thing. But the Europeans identify what's happening in the States very clearly. They see it as saying, wow. Wow. You're excluding us, and you're also excluding the Euro- the Asians, but you're doing it yourself. So this may violate World Trade Organization rules. Now, to answer your question, uh, the one section of it is just the CHIPS Act, which at least uh, does address the semiconductors, and that's to throw a lot of government money, in fact, a huge, unprecedented amount of tens of billions of dollars, to promote the construction of fabrication plants in new generation semiconductors. As to the broader uh, analysis of the, the the other act you mentioned the IRA, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the industrial policy component or one component of the two, I think that it's just a real hodgepodge. It it includes all kinds of social programs in that, but I'm not really going to be able to answer your question with precision peter because i haven't looked at it in a few weeks but it throws a lot of money to to start things up it primes the pump in
0: lots of different sectors and it seems to be working in some ways because as i mentioned earlier a lot of companies are grabbing these subsidies i suppose that's what they have to do don't they if if they're on offer they've got to take them
1: step forward at once but you've got a you've got a long you've got all kinds of regulations and uh all kinds of restrictions that have to be met before they can really get a hold of the money. Mm. So yes, it may seem to be working, but I would say it's very early innings.
0: Mark, is this just another form of protectionism?
3: In a, in a way, in a way, because the U.S. is finding, trying to try to find a way to com- compete going forward because they they see China and and actually even the EU and others as as being. Much more formidable competitors than maybe they they thought they were a few years ago, but industrial policy, as you as you know, as Barry knows, has not been particularly successful in the U.S. in previous years. Not only did they stayed away from it when they tried at government getting involved in the in the economy, like Hong Kong government, as a matter of fact, uh, has, has had a very mixed picture. But at the same time, it is it is definitely America first policy. Biden, he doesn't call it that that often, but that's what, what the Trump administration said, but he, it's certainly what it is. And so what's happening, as you pointed out, is several companies, international companies, are investing more in the U.S. to try to take that's advantage true. of some of these as well, well which is said, interesting.
1: Mark. I, I think you've got it right. And the answer to Peter's question is, yes, it's protectionist. Not, not overtly so, not not yeah. way over the line, but it is protection.
0: Sam, so what, what do you make of this? Now. Because if mm-hmm. um, you know, if America has been a big criticism, uh, big criticisms of China for its sort of industrial policies, the way it supports um, state-owned enterprises and so on, but isn't it just doing the same thing itself here?
2: They're doing the same, and also it's not going to solve the issue because if you look at uh, what uh, advantage people are looking at in China is the whole integration of the supply chain, I and mean, it's you have from rare earth processing. And if you're trying to do anything in China, you cross the border and within 20 miles, you can manufacture virtually everything. So they have the whole from, the whole actual from the very bottom to the top uh, processing, which you don't have in the US. This is purely targeted uh, on semiconductors, which is strategic, but that's not going to replace the dependence. So I think it's this protectionism is going to be completely inefficient. And, uh, you know, it's also very easy to blame China. But when you have, as I said, like a rare earth processing plant, which is extremely polluting, at the end of the day, none of these uh, developed countries wants to have it on their on their ground. So, but it is core to the uh, to the world economy. So, at the end of the day, you have to make a choice. And at this stage, they're just blaming, but they're not really to take on their responsibilities if they really want to decouple. So, it is bound to fail.
3: Reinforce what Sam says. Our, our foreign members keep talking about the ecosystem, and that can be defined in a lot of different ways, but how the China system... Is you know works. It's not perfect. There are flaws in it, but compared to other places in Asia and maybe other places in the world as well, and and it's not easily easily replaced or replicated.
0: The, the, what, what about the U.S., uh, Barry, on on the green? Uh, sort of sector this is one of the sectors isn't it that the biden administration has prioritized it wants more investments in and it's trying to encourage uh companies to, to to invest there that's where some of these subsidies are going presumably from the yes, from the absolutely, various acts
1: Peter. this is why the, the democratic sponsored ira which has far more money than the chips act that is the one that uh, many people in the environmental community hailed it but that's because it was done with stealth. No one knew what was in it. No one knew what these massive numbers really meant. But it does address the greenhouse issues that are at the forefront. So uh, let's see how that turns out.
0: Well, in, in the few minutes that we got left, let, let me return to China because we have got that economic data coming out in about uh, two hours time. Um, Let let me ask you all a question. How much is China in effect staying afloat and supporting its economy by just flooding its markets uh, with with cash? We saw those uh, uh, credit data. Credit expansion is much better than expected. In fact, for a month of March, it was a record um, sort of high. There's been a big spike in uh, demand for mid and long term loans for for, for housing. We've seen a Funds go to industrial projects, more bridges and railways. Is China reverting to type here and just trying to boost credit to, to drive its economy? I think, well, yeah, they'd
2: still, they still have been using the same, the same old trace which is infrastructure. But at the same time, they have the, what is really going to be the key driver for the Chinese economy to have this uh, domestic consumption continue to bounce back to pro-COVID. So I think it's not necessarily the government pushing, but you also have demand driving those numbers. So that's really what is going to be important to see in the medium term that continues to go up. So I don't think it's purely policy-induced. I think we are seeing some domestic rebound. So let's see what the numbers come up
3: with.
0: Mm -hmm. Mark, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm really looking for, for, for the same reasons. I'm looking forward to these numbers. They're not going to be decisive, of course, but at least they'll give an indication of... Of the direction the economy is growing, because again we've we've got mixed signals. Uh, you know, the maybe you saw it. The Economist now has a new term, and they call it the Mona Lisa post-pandemic economy. Each time you look, it looks like something different. <laughs> and I think they, That's very I, good. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that you know that that could apply to China and much of the uh, much of the rest of the issues that we're looking at right now. But I'm I'm. I'm I think we're gonna see some some movement, especially on the domestics side, which is very which is key for China moving forward. Both the government says so and I think that's true from a from an overall economic standpoint.
0: But Barry, I'm wondering how much the US and China can be following Totally different, um, sort of monetary policies and, and, policies on sort of credit growth, where you've got the US tightening, you've got them sort of reducing support for the economy, raising interest rates. You've got China doing the complete opposites. They're, they're lowering the cost of funds. They're, they're flooding, uh, the markets. You've got companies borrowing new money to go and refinance, um, existing debt. Um, in a more globalized economy that we have now, can this continue?
1: Well, I think your characterization is correct. And I don't know how long that can go on. Look, the political factor is critical. And uh, I was reading somewhere that uh, the Chinese government is reluctant to have Mr. Blinken, the Secretary of State, come to China if they're going, if the Americans disclose more about what was in that balloon. And uh, so we'll see how that plays out. And now you've got the, the day's news here in Washington is that there's been some Chinese uh, arrests in New York City about policing. So, you know, the political factors are dominant and the signs are not good.
0: Mm. Do do you think, um, Sam, China can uh, go back to the days where it really pulled the global economy forward? I mean, we saw that after the global financial crisis. Can it do the same again?
2: I think they're in a good position at the moment to be the main driver and uh, they can still work as you said the decoupling of monetary policy first of all because they control the yuan so it's a lot easier for them to uh, control the overall monetary policy so I think at this stage they'll probably have a lot of uh, more leverage to play around because they have been high inflation uh, as we mentioned earlier, the credit uh, issues are, for the time being, under control, so they can really be the leading driving uh, for for growth, at least regionally, for the time being.
0: What do you think, Mark?
3: Yeah, I think they're the main game in town, as they say. At this point, main, mainly in comparison to to the U.S. And, and part of Europe, at least at least for this year. So I, I agree with Sam, and i I hope it hope it hope it happens because we need yeah. a little we need a little boost.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And it's going to be the headline that says China is back. And that will be with us, I think, for several more months.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Barry, let me give the last word to you. President uh, Lula da Silva of Brazil, he was in China last week talking about um, emerging markets replacing the dollar in international trade and finance with their own currencies. He wants to reduce uh, the the dependency on the U.S. dollar, which, of course, is music to President uh, Xi Jinping's ears. What do you make of what he was talking about?
1: Well, I think Mr. Lula, who uh, is on the left, as some listeners would be aware, and he's come back for a second time in Brazil. Brazil's had a terrible time in the last 10 years trying to make its economy grow faster. Uh, I was at the first BRICS meeting. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, in Durban in 2013. The organization has uh, faded in its importance, and I think Mr. Lula wants to bring it back. And it's a cheap shot for anyone in the world to say, you know, let's go after the dollar. We don't like the dollar and the Yanks to be dominant. It's not going to happen, not with the BRICS. But, mm. of course, what sanctions have done against Russia is force Russia and China closer together, and they're settling their accounts in RMB.
0: Mm, I mean, well, I'm wondering what uh, the Biden administration makes of it, because um Brazil's traditionally a, a U.S. ally, isn't it? But here he is, you know, in a in, in a competitor in a competitor country, basically calling for the the replacement of the, the U.S. <laughs> national currency.
1: Well. I think uh, probably the Biden administration, the cooler heads, will regard what Mr. Lula said in China in the same way they regard what Mr. Macron said in China. <laughs> you can say all that you want, but it's not going to change very much. And I don't think the friendship of both those countries to the US is going to change.
0: OK, but both I agree. agree. Thank you all very much. Great to hear your thoughts this morning. You heard Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent. He's over in Washington, D.C., Sam Faver, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Mark Michelson, who is Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Thank you for listening this morning. If you have any comments on the show or questions for our guests, then please email me. My email address is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'll be joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Faul and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. And with a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.